Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Dr. Walter Block. Walter is an American-Austrian school economist and anarcho-capitalist theorist. He currently holds the Harold E. Worth Eminent Scholar Endowed Chair in Economics at the School of Business at Loyola University, New Orleans, and is a senior fellow of the nonprofit think tank Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. Dr. Block earned his Ph.D. in economics at Columbia University. He is an author, editor, and co-editor of many books, including Defending the Undefendable, a fourth version of which is forthcoming soon, also Economic Freedom of the World, 1975 to 1995, Rent Control, Myths and Realities, Discrimination, Affirmative Action, and Equal Opportunity, and many others. He has also written more than 500 articles for various non-refereed journals, magazines, and newspapers, and is a contributor to such journals as the Review of Austrian Economics, Journal of Libertarian Studies, the Journal of Labor Economics, Cultural Dynamics, and the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. He joins me today to discuss some of his academic research into the reasons people resist the free market, no matter how obviously it benefits them. Walter, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. You've got a couple of academic papers that, of course, I'm going to link to. They're both from a couple of years ago. And one of them is called the fallacy of a priori statism, where you make an argument against the a priori conclusion that the government is the solution to every problem. And we could talk a little bit about it, but I want to get to the other paper, which with all of the evidence that we have that the market always produces the best results, that every country that we can look at that became less socialist and more capitalist, for lack of a better word, poverty went down, outcomes were better. There's no country that you can point out where the opposite is true. And yet 
people are resistant to the market economy, to freedom, to free markets. And that brings us to this other paper called Evolutionary Psychology, Economic Freedom, Trade and Benevolence. And if you can, could you summarize your answer to my question there that why are people so resistant to free markets and freedom in general? Well, before I do that, let me just say that it's not exactly true that the market always is, um, you know, sometimes uh, people make hula hoops when nobody else wants a hula hoop, or they make typewriters when people want computers. The benefit, though, is that they go bankrupt. But you can't say that the market always is efficient or effective because the market is composed of human beings. And we, we need erasers on the end of our pencils because we make mistakes. And just because it's part of the free enterprise system doesn't mean that there'll be no mistakes. There are all sorts of examples of bankruptcy. Getting back to that paper, my co-authors and I, what we're trying to do is find out why it is. And as you say, every country that has any prosperity is free enterprise, and any country that is impoverished is pretty much socialist. And yet Bernie Sanders goes around and AOC and, and the, all the kids and a lot of adults who say, oh, yeah, socialism is great. Why is this? Well, we try to do a, socio a sociobiological explanation. So what is sociobiology? Sociobiology is the theory that we are now the way we are, the way we act, uh, our, our um, talents, our uh, predilections, our personalities are based on what it took to survive a million years ago when we were in the, in the trees or in the caves or wherever we were a million or a billion years ago, I'm not sure how long ago, the early part of mankind. And there, there are two ways to cooperate. And, and without cooperation, we're going to die because we're, we're weak and you know there are saber-toothed lions and tigers and, and bears who are way stronger than us. And all we had is sticks and stones, really. Uh, we needed cooperation. And there are really two ways to cooperate. One way to cooperate is explicit. And we are hardwired for explicit cooperation. If you and I are in the same tribe or in the same cave and you get sick this week uh, and I help you and next week I get sick and you help me, our tribe survives. On the other hand, if you get sick this week, <laughs> I, I go like this to you and I'm not going to help you. Well, then you're not around next week to help me. And, and we so we are hardwired for explicit cooperation. Uh, you know, if you're in a restaurant, you see somebody choking, you're not going to just keep eating. What you're going to do is at least get all upset and maybe go over and try to get a Heimlich maneuver on the guy or uh, call a, uh, an ambulance or something. I mean, uh, our instinct or uh, predilection or whatever it is, is to help uh, our fellow men. So we're hardwired for that. Uh, even babies are, are get it. But then there's this thing called implicit cooperation. And what's implicit cooperation? Implicit cooperation is markets. But when we were in the cave with the trees, there, were, there wasn't much free enterprise and only 30 people in our cave. And there wasn't much buying and selling. There wasn't much appreciation for buying and selling and making a profit or anything like that. If anything, there certainly was no appreciation and maybe there was some revulsion uh, for it. So 
I get freshman students in my economics classes and we talk about price gouging and they go, oh, price gouging is no good. You know, it's very bad. And, and uh, people who take advantage of other people by raising prices are rotten kids. And, and the minimum wage is great because we're going to help people. And they just have no biological impetus to either be neutral or respect this sort of a thing. Their predilection is to oppose markets because we're not hardwired for that. You and I probably, we're adults now, but when we were kids, we didn't start out as free enterprise. We're mutants, you and I, if I can speak for you as a fellow mutant, <laughs> because you and I, at, at the very least, were open to the possibility that implicit cooperation through markets uh, was, was a good thing. We got converted. I'm not sure how you did. I, I, I was converted by Ayn Rand, but at least I was open to it, whereas there are a lot of people that are not open to that. You, you try to explain to them the, the benefits of markets, and they think of um, exploitation and bossism and, 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 and harm, and, and they just don't see the benefits of the free enterprise. So that's roughly what this article started out to do or, or did. And we had three parts. The first part was what I'm just telling you. The second part was a, a colleague of mine and then a co-author who said, but wait, 10,000 years ago, we discovered uh, there was this tribe of 35 people and there were 5,000 pots. And then 10 miles away, there was another cave and we discovered 10,000 spears. And from this, we deduce that they were trading because, you know, a group of 30 people doesn't need 5,000 pots or 5,000 anythings. But uh, they specialize in making it and then they trade with the, the tribe down the street or down the path or whatever. And therefore, this called into question my hypothesis. And then the third co-author, what he said is, 10,000 years ago is nothing. We're talking, we're talking a million years ago. So yes, we do have some superficial hardwiring to be open to markets, but very, very little. Whereas uh, our deep biology is uh, not open to free enterprise system. And that's why Bernie Sanders himself is uh, a slave to, to these views. And that's why he and his views are so popular because of biology. At least that's the thesis of this uh, article. It reminds me a little bit of Mark Sisson's thesis on diet. He makes the same argument in terms of what food you ought to be eating. Of course, this is not advice to anybody else, but I find his argument persuasive that we have about a million years of human evolution, as you said, depending on what you call a human, going back to Homo erectus or whomever before that, whichever. But we've only been growing food and doing agriculture for eight or 10,000 years. So our bodies are not evolved to eat a lot of these foods. They're evolved to eat a different diet. And, and you're almost, it's a parallel argument. We're evolved to just look, that guy over there needs help. I'm going to go help him. If I got to get the whole tribe to drop what they're doing and go do it, we're going to do that. It doesn't matter if it makes economic sense. And we're not going to depend on a market solution to somebody who's in trouble. And that instinct is hardwired into us. So this leads me to a question that a friend of mine had been asking for most of our adult lives, which is how in the heck did the enlightenment happen in terms of economics? You've got Adam Smith and some others back there. Adam Smith posits the invisible hand. How did it happen? Was it a mutation? Like, how do you explain it in terms of your evolutionary biology argument? 
Yes, we're weirdos. We're mutants. We're, we're, I don't know, off the charts or whatever it is. Look, how many people vote libertarian in the United States? 1%, 2%, 3%, something like that. Very, very few people are open to that sort of a thing. My only explanation is, is that we're weirdos. We're off the charts. We're not marching with everybody else. Everybody else is marching with a certain drummer, and we're marching in a different way. We libertarians are strange, and we're not appreciated by the mainstream, by majority opinion. Adam Smith was an outlier, and Murray Rothbard, and Ayn Rand, and Ron Paul, and, and all the libertarian leaders are just weirdos. That would be my explanation as to why, even though most of us are hardwired in a certain way, some of us, some very rare ones, just come out of the womb and, and were free enterprises. That wasn't my experience. I was a pinko. I went to school with Bernie Sanders, and uh, he and I were on the track team together. We were buddies. My views were roughly the same as his. There are some people who were born libertarian. I'm not one of them. Uh, but I am mutant enough to be open to the possibility of seeing the light, whereas there are an awful lot of people, they're very bright. Uh, Einstein was very bright, a <laughs> genius, and yet he was not open to the possibility of free enterprise. He was a socialist. And there are a lot of very, very bright people out there who are a bunch of commies uh, and, and sort of good guy commies. They're not trying to hurt people. They're trying to help people. Bernie Sanders, uh, I, he's a nice guy. I know him personally. I spent four years in high school and one year in college overlapping with him. He's a nice guy. He is not trying to hurt humanity. He's trying to help. But he is not a mutant in this regard. Let me throw this argument at you just to see what you think of it. I would say that the 18th and 19th centuries, the market position was not the mutant position, that it was the majority view that you had this progression where the markets became freer and freer and people were winning elections to repeal the corn laws in Britain and Thomas Jefferson getting up there in 1800 and basically saying, we need a libertarian society. We need a government to keep us from injuring each other and otherwise leave us free. And just to make a generalization that I'm sure you could punch some holes in, but overall, it seemed like more and more free market, more and more libertarian. And then dawn of the 20th century, boom, we start going in the other direction. Is that a mistaken view or was something going on that stopped going on? Or how do you see it? Take the watermelon when there were pits. How many pits were there in the big watermelon uh, compared to the watermelon? I don't know, an ounce or two of pits and then the watermelon weighs 10 pounds. Yes, every once in a while you get an eruption of free enterprise, and you're certainly right about the 18th and even 19th century. Every once in a while you get a Thomas Sowell or a Walter Williams or a Ron Paul. But if you look over the broad history and over the, the, whole, the whole planet in, in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, you just get a little bit. Look, even uh, Clinton, Bill Clinton once said, what is it, the age of government is over or something like that? So every once in a while you get a watermelon, but but the political economy is like the watermelon, not like the pits. Uh, so again, the watermelon might weigh 10 or 15 pounds and the pits are uh, an ounce or two. So yes, every once in a while you get an eruption. 
of, of freedom. And uh, even in the modern era, we have the Libertarian Party. We have uh, Tom Mullen talks freedom. Uh, we have me uh, and, I don't know, maybe 100 or 200 uh, professors in the United States who are really um, – a free market, but there are, I don't know, 40,000 professors in the United States, and we've got 150 of them. Well, that's the watermelon, watermelon. So you're quite right to point out counterexamples, but the but I, I insist that the counterexamples are very, very few and far between relative to the whole panoply of political economy. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. Would you say that, thinking about those two papers again, that the argument for the free market is one that you arrive at by reason, but this evolutionary instinct, is this based on emotion or is that a false equivalence to say instinct equals emotion? So in other words, if we apply pure reason that we'll arrive at the market, but that there's this deep emotional instinct against it? I think that's pretty accurate. But again, I emphasize that the socialists, uh, Noam Chomsky and other socialists, they're not dummies. I mean, if you give them an IQ test, they're pretty good. Pretty good. Very, very good. Very bright. Einstein, you know, I think maybe might have been the smartest person who ever lived. And yet when it came to economics, he was just out to lunch. So whether you call it emotion or a closed-mindedness or, or something or unreasonableness, but, I mean, but they're very, uh, Einstein was very reasonable and Chomsky was very reasonably in linguistics. He made great contributions to linguistics before he got into political economy. And when they talked about those things, they were very, very intelligent. It's just that there's this sort of window where they just can't think in a certain area. I guess where I was going with that is that when you think about how human beings not only survived, but became the top of the food chain on the planet, it was always because they had superior reasoning ability. Every advancement that we have, as some of the examples you gave, is the product of observing the real world and applying reason to it and drawing the correct conclusions. And you would just think that in economics, you would look at, at and a great example is China. Okay, so why is China a dominant economic power now 
obviously because they're not laissez-faire, but they're much freer and they're much more a market economy than they were, say, under Mao. And you could just look at a timeline and say, right here is where they started making reforms and you can see how fast the progress was. Yet when people look at China, they make this assumption that what interventions they have left are what's making them strong. And that just doesn't make any sense. So that's where I'm wondering, is this even by smart people, let's say, that say, well, we need to have tariffs because China doesn't have an open market for our products, where, as you've said many times, look, we're better off with no tariffs, even if they have tariffs. So what's kicking in there for people to buy that argument when it's so obvious that that's not right? One of my favorite movies, uh, really a great movie everyone should watch, is The Mouse That Roared. You seen that? Yeah. <laughs> Peter Sellers? Yeah. Peter Sellers played five or six characters. Peter Sellers was great. Just uh, for the audience who might not be aware of this, uh, let me summarize. Uh, there's this country uh, right after World War II, sort of like a duchy, like Luxembourg or Monaco, and they were very poor. And they noticed that the U.S. was giving all sorts of money to the countries that they had conquered, like Italy and Germany. So Luxembourg or Monaco or the Peter Sellers country declared war on the U.S., and the U.S. just ignored them. So they sent a, a military force. Peter Sellers was the general and about 10 guys. And, and they came to the United States to, to conquer the United States and then to lose so that they could get the largesse. <laughs> and then what happened is that they won. Don't ask how they won, but they won. And, and there was this magnificent conversation between the queen and uh, Peter Sellers was the queen and Peter Sellers, the general. And the general tells the queen, hey, we won. And the queen says, you idiot. You were supposed to lose the war. What's the matter with you? Uh, just a magnificent movie. Well, Hong Kong was like the mouse that roared, and China was like the United States. And when Great Britain moved out of uh, Hong Kong, China promised to have one country, two systems. And for a while, they actually did. And Hong Kong, instead of China taking over Hong Kong, as they now have 30, 40 years ago, it was rather Hong Kong that took over China and made it much more free enterprise. Now they're backtracking a little bit. But still, the reason that China is now an economic power is because of the mouse that roared, namely Hong Kong, which inputted a whole bunch of free enterprise into China. Okay, China was never laissez-faire capitalism, but they moved in that direction. And that's why they're so wealthy and, and therefore a more military power because what is it? The army marches on its stomach and the stomach is the economy. So I would say to respond to your question, the reason China is doing so well is they had a modicum of free enterprise thanks to Hong Kong. Oh, that's a great analogy, too, with the mouse that roared. I'm going to go watch it again because it's <laughs> a great movie. I, and I, I think we were just chatting right before we got on here. The thing that really frustrates me, and I know the answer is probably the same thing, is this baby formula shortage. Now, again, we've got lots of smart people. I know lots of smart people, smarter than me. That look at this baby formula shortage, and you've got an agency called the FDA whose purpose is to limit competition of all kinds of things, including baby formula. So they have allowed five or six companies to make baby formula and nobody else. And then the biggest one, who is the biggest because of the way regulations can be manipulated by the people who write them, i.e. the regulated companies, then you shut them down. And of course, there's this artificial shortage, which would not exist in a free market. 
And yet people look at this and they say the free market failed. So what can we do differently besides shout at the ocean and say, come on, you've got six companies that can't be normal, right? Is there a different strategy or do we just keep shouting? Well, I don't know. I like whining more than shouting, but (laughs) (laughs) we have to whine. We have to shout. We have to write articles. We have to write books. We have to have a Mises Institute or a Cato Institute or a Reason Foundation, a Foundation for Economic Education, which support free enterprise. We have to have a Libertarian Party. We have to have Ayn Rand's books. Somebody else should write a novel of promoting free enterprise. Another vehicle for promoting free enterprise is written by libertarians. So there, there are many ways to promote liberty or to promote good understanding of economics. I might as well put in a plug for Loyola University, New Orleans, where I'm a professor. We're always looking for good students who are open to this. And one of my colleagues on that paper is uh, John Lavendis, who is a fellow professor of mine at Loyola. So those would be the vehicles. I mean, we're not going to pick up a gun and start shooting anybody. Uh, we're intellectual operation, and we're just trying to promote liberty in a peaceful way. So I I think these are the the various vehicles. Another one would be the Free State Project, where everyone should go to New Hampshire, and maybe New Hampshire will lead us, be a leading light. There's the Seasteading Project. There are many, many ways of promoting liberty, all of which put together haven't got us there yet, but I think it would be worse. You know, Milton Friedman once made this brilliant statement. What he said is, Thanks to all economists, all of us throughout history, tariffs are now one-tenth of one percent lower than they otherwise would have been. (laughs) And with that, we've paid for our salaries 10,000-fold. So it was a very modest way of putting it that, you know, all economists together, just one-tenth of one percent lower tariffs than they otherwise would have been, which isn't much. But by gum and by golly, uh, there are only, I don't know, 40,000 economists in the country. Not all of who are free trade, but most economists are free trade. And as you said, would recognize that even if China has tariffs, it doesn't matter. If they refuse to trade with us, doesn't mean we have to refuse to trade with them. The analogy I sometimes use is there are two men in a rowboat, and one of them shoots a hole in the bottom of the boat. Should the other guy shoot another hole in the boat? No. He should put his foot on the first hole and keep bailing. So I think we make modest contributions. I can extrapolate from economists to libertarians. Yes, we have one-tenth of one percent more freedom than we otherwise would have had because of all of us libertarians working on converting people or whatever it is that we do. And with that, we've saved billions of dollars and many, many lives as well. Let me ask you, I know you're working on another book, and maybe we can give people a preview because it's not out yet. But as a professor of economics, so you can do all the models, you can do the Keynesian stuff, you can do the Chicago school. Are you able to teach Austrian economics or are you pigeonholed into here's the textbook and this is what we teach and all you can do is make some commentary? How does it work for a professor of economics who's an Austrian who's teaching in a a mainstream university? Well, you know, what I do usually, by the way, I'm coming out with a textbook, an introductory textbook on economics. I'll be using my textbook and hopefully other people will use it as well. But before this, what I would do is I'd get a mainstream textbook 
And I and what I do is say, well, here's what the mainstream says. And and I would spend 90, 95% of the class time on saying what the mainstream says. Because if kids are going to go to graduate school or to other classes, they have to know what an indifference curve is, even though we Austrians uh, criticize indifference curves. So I'll spend 90, 95% of my time saying, what is an indifference curve? Or what is the monopoly diagram? Or what is monopsony? And then I'll spend five or 10% saying why. So I do input Austrian economics along with the mainstream, but I feel obligated to acquaint the students with what the mainstream profession is saying, because otherwise they'd be cheated. If all I did was Austrian economics, and then they went to another school or graduate school, and they never even heard of what the mainstream is saying, well, that, that would be a problem. And also a lot of what Austrians do is criticize the mainstream. So if you would be able to understand what the Austrian criticism is, you have to understand what the mainstream view is in the first place. So I, I think I wouldn't want to do 100% Austrianism. I would want to do uh, roughly what I do, 10% Austrianism and 90% mainstream economics. Yeah, they have to understand what it is that they're refuting. And somebody's got to be able to do all those models before you could say, these models aren't right. <laughs> and here's why. So now you have a very famous book called Defending the Undefendable. The first edition, I think, came out in the 1970s. And I know you're working on the latest. I think it would be number four. I happen to have all three of them. This is Defending the Undefendable 1, which came out in 76. Here is Defending the Undefendable 2, which came out in 09. And here is Defending the Undefendable 3, which just came out in 2021. And I'm now working on number four. Probably won't be out in 23. It might be out in, in 2024. I'm not sure because I have other things that I'm also working on. And the essence of all three, it's the same book, only with different instances. And the essence of all three of them is we defend or I defend all sorts of activities which are either illegal or reviled by everybody. And yet they do not violate the libertarian non-aggression principle. For example, between consenting adults, if you want to take drugs, it should not be illegal. And yet it is illegal. Or say a prostitution, the same sort of a thing. So I defend those activities uh, that are not uh, violence, not a, a rights violation, and yet are illegal or cordially hated by everyone, or say profiteering. And uh, with regards to prostitution, I don't defend prostitution. I personally are, I'm against prostitution. I'm sort of culturally conservative. But uh, the question is, should they go to jail if they engage in capitalist acts between consenting adults? So I defend them only insofar as they should not be put in jail. I don't defend them per se in many cases. So that's what all three of these books have in common. I never really thought of it this way. Of course, I didn't know the, the theory until I read your paper on the evolutionary part of it. But going along with that, when you talk about people like the speculator or the slumlord, your paper explains why someone would vilify this person and not ever see any benefit that maybe a slumlord is providing, but they are providing a tremendous benefit, a life-saving benefit to people who can't afford to live anywhere else. Yeah. One way to see that is say, suppose that the slumlord disappeared and all of the slums, where would the people go who are now living in those places? Well, they'd be homeless or they'd be living in a car or in a, a cardboard box or something. So the fact that the people are in the slum shows that, in at least in their view, that's their best option. 
And if you take it away from them, you're not helping them. Nobody likes uh, slum housing, but the, the question is, is there a positive uh, contribution that the slum lord is making? And obviously he is, because if he weren't, the people wouldn't go to the slums. So that, that would be uh, yet one more example. Another indirect benevolence that nobody wants to reckon with. Well, Walter, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm going to link to the previous versions of Defending the Undefendable, and hopefully uh, you could make some time to come back when the new version comes out, talk about some of the new undefendable people that you will be defending. Well, thanks for having me on your show. I really enjoyed it. It was a lovely time. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.